Well, good morning again. I'm very, very glad to be able to be with you this morning, to be able to have time where we can spend in the Word of God. Let me give you just a, a bit of understanding, or, or I guess a, a bit of a timeline. On Monday, Tim sent a message to uh, myself and to Drew and to Brad and say, said, uh, Ellen, Ellen has COVID. And although he said that he's feeling fine, I looked at Drew very promptly and said, I think I'm going to start studying. On Wednesday, he said, I have a little tickle in my throat. I said to Brad and Drew, I think I'm going to start putting stuff down on paper. And then on Thursday, hey, we have a baby dedication on Sunday as well. But I am thrilled to be here. Let me tell you at the start, at the outset, that today's sermon is indeed a tangled web. All right? There is illegality, corruption, bribery, false testimony, slander, and blasphemy. Today's sermon contains the worst, worst offense of injustice of all time. And that's the text that I get to bring to you. And I've been studying hard for and been putting things down since Thursday. But let me let you know that our main passage this morning, it will be Luke chapter 22, verses 66 through chapter 23, verse 25. But it would do you well if you want to follow along with where we're all going today. It will do you well if you have that part of your Bible saved as well as Matthew chapter 26 and Mark chapter 15 and John chapter 18. We will be covering all four Gospels this morning. It might feel a bit like drinking from a fire hydrant. That's okay because for Christ to endure what He went through, I'm sure felt even more difficult. In our text today, there is a court called the Sanhedrin is brought to order. The Sanhedrin would have been the judges. We'll talk about them a little bit more uh, later on. But they are gathered, and this court of judges has one agenda, and it's not justice, it's certainly not mercy, they have one agenda, and it is this, kill Jesus. He must be murdered. The high priests are involved. We're going to see Roman indifference and violence. Every single judicial law that God has put into place is going to be broken in our sermon this morning. Every last one of them, time and time again, because they want to kill a man. And why? Why do they want to kill a man? Why Jesus it's not our main text, but I'll give you at least in our reading this morning why they want to kill Jesus, why this bloodlust, why so bloodthirsty. This is right after Lazarus has been raised from the dead, right after Jesus has come and right after he has, while Lazarus was four days 
dead, lying in a tomb, lifeless. Jesus comes, says, Lazarus, come forth. And we know the story. Lazarus miraculously gets up. A dead man listens to the voice of his Savior, and he comes to life. Thank God we still have that today. But in verse 45 of John 11, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, and remember his name because he's going to come up a lot today. Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. We have a judicial court that's going to be called. The Sanhedrin are all going to gather with one agenda. Put Jesus to death. And it's because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And since then, they have been nothing but bloodthirsty. They've been nothing but violent. And they have been looking for a reason to execute him. Before we get to our passage, I wanted to give you the motive of why they want to put him to death. But I also feel like before we get to the passage, you need to understand the system that God had put into place for the judicial courts. And the reason for it is, is because I want you to have an understanding of what God had instituted what God had established, and then when we read the text of Scripture, when we read our passage, I want you to feel, I want you to have it weigh upon you just how far they stray from the system God put into place. God instituted a merciful system. The judicial system that God established in Deuteronomy 16 verses 18 through 20, was meant for mercy. Mercy was the primary, was the leading goal of the courts. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 18 through 20, You shall appoint judges and officers in all of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Justice was to be primary. Mercy was to be primary. And when we get to the text, you're going to see there is no mercy and there is no justice and there is no evidence of anything that God has instituted. We won't go through all of the passages to bring these forth. Just suffice it to say, through Deuteronomy, we get the system in place of what Jesus, or what the trial process should have looked like and what Jesus should have gone through. There were three things given in every criminal trial. Number one, the trial had to be in public. It was a public trial. Number two, there had to be a defense for the accused. And number three, guilt was established by two or three witnesses. None of these are present in Jesus' trials. If a man brings a witness, if he brings witness, then he must be able to state how he knows that person, 
He must be able to state the date that it happened. He must be able to establish the time that it happened. And he must give a full account of the crime. If the accused is found guilty, then the witnesses of the crime, the witnesses who stood in trial and testified against the accused, those witnesses are the first to throw the stone when he is executed. Perhaps that's why in John chapter 8, when Jesus is brought the woman who was caught, he says, let he among you who is without sin cast the first stone. And none of them were witnesses. They also recognized that none of them were without sin. If a person stands up as a witness and is found out to be a false witness, then he is punished in the same manner that the accused was caused to be punished. Deuteronomy 19 tells us that. So in other words, if you accused a man of a crime and that person was guilty, found guilty, and then they were killed for that crime, and then it was discovered that you were a false witness, you would be killed in like manner. Women were not allowed to be witnesses because it was feared that they would not be able or willing to throw the first stone. And no one could accuse themselves. No one could bring a self-incriminating accusation against themselves. It had to be by the witnesses. Now the Sanhedrin was a gathering of 70 men and a high priest. It was always an odd number because there was going to be a vote. And for, for obvious reasons, you could not have an even number because you didn't want to tie. If the accused was found guilty, and just so you know, it could not be a unanimous decision. Because if it was a unanimous decision in a group of 70 men at the most, if it was a unanimous decision, then it would be without mercy and likely there would be briberies and money exchanging hands. If the accused was found guilty, the council would wait an entire day in the room where they made the judgment. They would wait an entire day so that more evidence could be brought to the table so that more witnesses could come and say, maybe I have a testimony for the accused in defense of the accused, and they could reconsider their vote. If they changed their mind, if someone said at the first vote, I believe they are guilty, but then upon new evidence, they said, I believe now that they are innocent, they could change their vote, but no person could change their vote from a mercy of, uh, from a vote of innocence to guilt. And the day of the sentence, they would lead the accused through the city, announcing to everybody who this person was and why they were being led to their sentence. And if anybody on the way to the sentence heard about what was going on and decided at that moment, I have evidence to support this person. They could approach the party that was going to the punishment. And at that moment, if new evidence is brought into life, they halted everything. They went back to hear what was going to happen. This whole system was set up for mercy. If there was going to be an error, it was going to be on the side of mercy now with that established i want to read to you our main text this morning luke chapter 22 verses 66 we're going to go through to chapter 23 verse 25 i want you now knowing what is supposed to be in place for the system of judgment i want you to now hear 
this reading and see if you find one ounce of mercy or one ounce of legal judgment. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, the king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man! And released to us Barabbas, a man who has been thrown into prison for an insurrection starting in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Let me pray. And let's jump into it even a little further. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do love you. We praise you. We thank You that You sent Your Son and that, Father, Your Son endured every hostility even in a court of justice. Father, I pray that as we go through the Scriptures this morning that, God, You would speak through Your text, that Your Spirit would use me to communicate Your truth, and that, Father, this message though it is going to be a tangled web, though it is going to be fatiguing, though it is going to be at every turn merciless, I pray that You would reveal to us the goodness of Your mercy to send Your Son to endure all of this so that we might have salvation in His name. I pray all these things in that precious name, the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name, for His sake. Amen.
You've seen a merciful system that God instituted, but as we read the text, did you hear or see any mercy or any legality present at the trial of Jesus? And the answer must be no. No. Luke's account gives us a very good illustration, a very good visual of what happened, but Luke's account is not all. Luke as he says at the beginning of his book, at the beginning of his letter, that he is looking and writing the eyewitness accounts of what Jesus said and taught and endured. Therefore, Luke's accounts are what he could find eyewitness testimony about. His testimony or his witness or his account starts with the public trial. The Gospels, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record a total of six trials. There are only four mentioned in Luke. There are three that are before the Sanhedrin, the judges, and there are three before Gentile officials. So in order to get a full account of what Jesus endured, we need the other Gospels to inform us of the timeline of what Jesus' date of trial and murder looked like. So the first one that we're going to look at is in John 18. You will need Luke again, but if you want to flip over there with me, I invite you to do that. John chapter 18. This is immediately following the arrest of Jesus in the garden. This is immediately following Judas's betrayal. This is still in the dead of night. Just so you're aware... We can't be too dogmatic about this. We can't be too... um, We can't say that this is absolute truth and gospel truth. But most scholars all agree that Jesus was arrested at about midnight. And He was taken from the garden. And at about 1 a.m., John gives us the first account of Jesus' first trial. John 18, verses 12 through 14, tell us this. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father in law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So about one in the morning, Jesus is brought to the house of Annas. Let me ask you about this. At what point is this a public trial? Well, the answer is at no point is this first trial a public trial. Let me give you just a little bit of of understanding why they brought him to Annas. Because Annas is an interesting character. He only comes up briefly in the Scriptures. What we have to get, we get from histories in other areas. Annas was a corrupt high priest. He had been the high priest 20 years prior to when Jesus was brought to his house. Now, To say that he was no longer the high priest is almost a bit tongue-in-cheek. He was still in the office of high priest, but he was not serving as high priest. Now understand, when you were given the title of high priest, that was supposed to be a lifelong thing. You were supposed to serve as high priest for the remainder of your life. You weren't supposed to be out of that position. But Annas was no longer the high priest. He was actually forced to step down by 
the Roman government because they realized just how corrupt and how wicked he was. If the Romans force you out, that's, that's saying a lot. All of the priests after, which, just so you know, there were six high priests from Annas' day to when Jesus was crucified. There were six high priests and every single one of them was related to Annas. They were either sons or, in Caiaphas' case, he was a son-in-law. Caiaphas was over, in charge, the top dog, delegating and overseeing the money changers' tables. Now, if you remember what Jesus did when he saw the money changers' uh, tables in the temple, he overturned them. Because the money changers did something very wicked. You couldn't use just regular money in the temple. You had to actually have temple money. And in order to get temple money, you had to take other money, other funds to the money changers. And they would, at an exuberant, at at an enormous amount, they would change your money into temple money. And so all of that profit that these money changers uh, tables were getting, Annas was just raking it in hand over fist. He was also in charge of all of the sacrificial animals that were in the temple at the same time. Again, you would have to bring your animal to the temple and you would have to have the priest inspected or they would have to inspect the animal and every single one of the animals that you would bring into the temple was found with some blemish. So, hey it's best for you just to buy one of our animals and they would charge an over-the-top price for those animals. Annas was very wealthy and by the time he gets to Jesus, he's almost this godfather kind of a figure, the godfather of corruption and over the wickedness in the temple. So they bring him to Annas. And why do they bring him there? Because if there's anybody who can figure out something to say against Jesus that will get the Romans to crucify him, it's Annas. Annas can figure it out. Annas can figure out charges that we can bring to Rome that will get Jesus crucified. So John continues explaining what happens in Annas' house. In verse 19 of John 18, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So what happened here? Annas starts to question Jesus personally. That's not supposed to happen. You're supposed to bring witnesses. You're not supposed to openly ask the accused what's going on. And instead, he's asking Jesus kind of these these uh, introductory sorts of questions. Hey, what are you teaching? What is going on? He's trying to find something. Something that he can take to the Romans and say, this is why we've got to kill him. And Jesus' answer is only this. Why are you questioning me? Where are you? The witnesses. This is illegal. He pulls the rug right out from underneath them, and Annas and everyone who is there knows it. This is not public. There are no witnesses. There is no defense. Why are you asking me? Where are the witnesses? Everyone has heard me teaching in the synagogues. Everyone's heard me teaching in the temple. Why ask me? And it infuriates them so much that someone even comes up and strikes Jesus for it. Is that how you address the high priest? And again, Jesus' words are just, if 
I have said something false, where's your witness? Witness against me. If not, why do you strike me? After a couple hours going around of this, they can find nothing for it. And so Jesus is then brought before Caiaphas. For that account, read Matthew chapter 26. In verse 57 through 68, guys, there's going to be a lot of reading this morning. Just prepare yourself. There's a lot of reading this morning. Then those who had seized Jesus, uh, this is uh, Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end of now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, You, Christ, who is it that struck you? Jesus is taken across the courtyard, taken from Annas' house, across the courtyard to Caiaphas' place. During the time that he was in Annas' house, Caiaphas has been going around gathering all of the Sanhedrin. All of them. All 70 of them. Hey, we got him. We've got Jesus. He's, he's arrested. He's bound. Come on. Come on. Come on. He's gathering them all. So they're all gathering together in the courtyard. They're all waiting for when they're going to see Jesus walk across. That's where Peter has been. He's been in the courtyard, and when they walk Jesus across the courtyard, after Peter has been recognized by all these Sanhedrin and by all these people gathering, they say, hey, weren't you one of his disciples? He keeps denying him. It's during that time when Jesus is walking from the courtyard, from Annas' house to Caiaphas' house, that Luke's account tells us he makes eye contact with Peter in his denial of Christ. Jesus is taken before Caiaphas probably around 3 a.m. No public, just the Sanhedrin. And they're trying to find witnesses. Something else that must have happened during the time that Annas was interviewing Jesus, they must not have only been getting the Sanhedrin, they had to be going up to other people and saying, hey, hey, will you come and testify against Jesus? Will you come and testify against Jesus? Hey, will you be a witness against Jesus? Briberies going on. False witnesses are being brought. They're trying to find witnesses. Mark chapter 14, I, I won't flip there just because of the sake of time, says that even these witnesses, they didn't even agree on one of another. This goes on for a couple of hours, and they find nothing. Nothing that they can take before Rome that will get him crucified. There is nothing. No crime. Jesus remains silent. Just like Isaiah says that he was silent as a sheep before the shears and opened not his mouth. Why is he silent? There's a couple of reasons. He doesn't have to say anything. It's painfully obvious that these testimonies, these witnesses, all fall short. They all fail. 
He doesn't have to say one word. The second being this. That Jesus' words, remember how I told you that you couldn't be giving testimony against yourself, you could not incriminate yourself? The moment Jesus opens His mouth in a court, in a trial, it's not recorded. It makes no difference. Now everyone else would have been saying, that's not true, that's not true, that's not true. Jesus remains silent because their testimony is failing already and because He doesn't have to say a word. Not only that, but His silence has to be deafening to that crowd. Finally, Caiaphas asks the real question about Jesus' identity. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? And he puts him on oath before God. Before God, I need you to give this testimony. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus, under oath before God Almighty, says, You say I am, and from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power. Oh yes, Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Under testimony, I will tell you that for sure. I have nothing to say to these false witnesses, but I will testify exactly who I am. It says He's the Son of Man, which is a reference to Daniel chapter 7. And now they have Him on blasphemy, they think. And Caiaphas tears his robe this would be high priestly robes you were not allowed to tear those unless a great crime against god had been committed like blasphemy he tears his robe to show off just how bad it is with this uh, gathering this group of the sanhedrin i'm gonna show how bad that is he tears his high priestly robe and in that moment jesus who had committed no blasphemy remains innocent but an act of blasphemy was committed because he claimed that Jesus was not the Son of God and he ripped the high priestly robe. Yes, blasphemy was committed, but it was not on the part of Jesus. It was on the high priest. Jesus has already been hit once, but now the beatings begin. The Sanhedrin start hitting him. They start mocking him. And they do that for a couple of hours. Why do they do that for a couple of hours? Well, because they have to have a veneer. They have to have a facade of some legality. So they've got to take this public. So let's beat him up until there are some people who are awake. And then we'll take him out into the courtyard and we'll do this same thing in front of them. That's exactly what happens. Back in Luke 22, I've read these verses. I will read them again just so you have heard them. Luke Chapter 22, 66 through 71. When day came, so finally morning has come, light is there. There are some people milling around. It's probably ish around 5, 5.30 a.m. People got up earlier back then. They went to bed earlier too. When day came, the assembly of elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. Why does he say that? Because they didn't believe it before. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? No witnesses called. No defense called. We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And they pronounce him guilty based upon his own testimony. What legal procedure was followed at all? None. They go through the exact same thing. They go through this facade, this fake trial. 
And in Luke 23, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. A couple of things to note there. It says that the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. Do you remember what I told you about what a unanimous decision of guilt meant? It meant a mistrial. But the whole lot of them, all 70, get up, and they're going to go to Pilate. This is a mob. This is not justice. This is a riot breaking out to kill Jesus. Interestingly enough, and it it, it kind of hit me, they never brought a single defense before Jesus. The whole company leaves. They were supposed to wait for a day. Remember that? They're supposed to wait for a day for other witnesses to come. Well, the high priest is kind of still around because he's got to do work in the temple. But the whole rest of the Sanhedrin, gone. There is a witness who comes to his defense. Matthew 27, 3 through 5. I'll only be here but just a moment. This, this blew my mind when I thought about it. Finally, evidence comes in defense of Jesus. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. A witness! A witness to his innocence! Jesus should have been called back right then and there. Not only do we have a witness, but we have someone who has said, I was a witness against him, now I am a witness for him. He's allowed to change his mind, and he's actually able to be a witness and say, I can testify to all the things the other false witnesses said. Say they're not true. He is a huge witness for Christ. And look at their response I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. I don't think Judas was really doing anything righteous here. The reason why I think that is because of what happened after He went and made a big show of it. They would have paid him in temple money. They would have paid him in money they had. Instead of going and putting that money back in the coffer, going and putting it back in the areas where they would have collected the money, he went into the holy place of the temple and he throws the 30 pieces of silver in there. He didn't go into the holy of holies, but he went to the holy place, throws it in there. Why? Because he's wanting everyone, only the chief priests, only the priests can go in there he's wanting them to see a display of exactly what they've done i think he's wanting to go there i think he's wanting to say i was a false witness i was a false witness he's obviously miserable unto death he's wanting them to put him to death and maybe if they put him to death and they let jesus go maybe then he can at least get rid of some of of uh of his guilt but they have none of that Judas wants to be killed instead. He wants to get rid of that. They won't do it, so he goes and kills himself. That was Jesus' three trials before the murderous Sanhedrin. Very quickly, and I do mean very quickly because these go quicker, the the Jews took hours to figure out what they were going to do with Jesus. The Romans know exactly who Jesus is immediately. And just spoiler alert, every single one of them say not guilty. Luke 23, 2 says they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. This is before Pilate they're saying that. Where did they come up with that? Where did that come from? No witnesses brought that up. They must have come up with that on their way to Pilate's place. What are we going to say that he's not going to crucify Jesus? Hey, let's say that he's telling people not to pay tribute to Caesar and uh, that he's claiming to be the king. That'll work. He's an insurrectionist. Let's do that. 
because Rome wouldn't kill him for blasphemy. Pilate's response is interesting. John 18 records it for us. I know I said we were flipping back and forth a lot. Let me grab it. John 18, 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat Passover. That blows my mind. They think they're not defiled right now. They want to eat Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And that was true. Let me stop there just for a moment. What does Pilate look at him? He says, and this is an interesting thing that he says, it was illegal for the Jews to kill anybody. The Jews never crucified anybody. That was a Roman execution. Do you know what the Jews did to kill people? They stoned them. That was their way of executing. They're not supposed to do that. But Pilate looks at the situation. A mob of 70 people bring one man who's already been beaten to a pulp. They say, here he is. Here's this guy claiming to be a king. Obviously, he's not. There's nothing about this guy that looks like a king. And so he sees there is a bloodthirsty mob. But I can't kill this guy. So he says, look, go take him. And you guys can stone him. I'll turn my back. What more could they want, right? Go take him, kill him yourself. Do it your own way. This time I'll let you have that. Okay, just go do it. But no, they want Rome to do it. They want Rome to kill him. I do think it's interesting that in John 12, 32, Jesus says this, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus knew he was going to die on a cross, that he would never be thrown down to be stoned, but he was going to be lifted on a cross. Pilate was playing right into Jesus' sovereignty, and he didn't even know it. No, I will not be thrown down and stoned. I will be lifted up and put on a cross. They wanted Rome to do it. Because they were afraid of Jesus, they were afraid of the people. Pilate asks, he takes him in there, we read these words earlier, and he asks Jesus, a beaten man, if he is the king. Are you really a king? You're beaten, where's your army? Are you a king? Jesus responds, have you heard this? Have you been told this by Rome? Am I on some list as an insurrectionist somewhere? Has Rome let you know about me? Or is this them? Who's telling you about it? Pilate walks out. Or he, his answer is, I'm not a Jew. In other words, this is not my fight. I'm not Jewish. I'm not going to kill you for blasphemy. This is not my fight. And you know what? It's not my place to put you on death for something you haven't done, obviously. So Pilate's verdict is not guilty, and he sends him to Herod. I read the verses about what his trial looked in Herod. Let me give you just a little background. Herod never knew what to think about Jesus. John the Baptist was executed by Herod. And at one point, Herod thinks maybe Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. It was kind of making him fearful. Then, uh, that's in Mark 6 that we get that. And then in Luke 9, we get this strange account where people come up to Jesus and say, hey, you need to get out of here because Herod wants to kill you. But for whatever reason... This madman, Herod, he's glad to see Jesus now. Herod had built a lot of very wonderful cities very near Jesus. And you know who Jesus never went to go see? He never went to go see Herod. He never went to one of those cities. He never saw the great construction of Herod. And so Herod's never seen one of these signs. He's never seen one of these miracles. And so I want to see one. Herod says, I want to see a sign. Show me a miracle. Show me one of these things. Jesus made no answer. But as silent as Jesus was, 
There was loudness in Herod's area because the Sanhedrin is there, this mob is there, and they're shouting vehemently that they want him dead. They're shouting his crimes against him. Herod, again, knows that Jesus is no rebel. In fact, he joins in mocking Jesus like the Sanhedrin did. Says that he mocked him, that he put him in robes. And he basically did the same thing the Sanhedrin would do. He would punch him. Hey, who was it who hit you? He was mocking his deity. But Herod's verdict? Not guilty. He sends him back to Pilate. We read the verses about what happened. I'm, I'm trying not to, to go back over all the same things, but you've got to understand at this point, now there's a lot of people up. It's probably about 6 in the morning. Probably about 6 in the morning, and people are milling around a lot more than were just there at his trial before. And they see this mob of 70 walking with Jesus, and so they're curious and they're going to follow. They follow to where Jesus is taken before Pilate. Luke 23, 13 through 16, just briefly. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done him. I will therefore punish and release him. What's being said here? <clears throat> he, by the way, Pilate pronounces Jesus not guilty three different times in verse 4, verse 14, and verse 22. And when he says, I will punish him, that is not the word for scourge. That's not the Greek word for scourge. That is a different word. It comes up in Mark 15, 15. But the word that he uses is paidou or paido, which is the punishment there. It's almost this, this mindset of what I'm going to do is I will, if, if anyone is accused of being an insurrectionist or is accused of rebellion, the Romans, if they didn't find any evidence, what they would do is they would take that person, they would keep him, and they would kind of punish him by saying, if you actually do cause an insurrection, the sword's coming for you. Look at the power that we have. Look at the might that we have. And if you actually do the things that, you're, that we think that you might do, then you're going to be punished. That was the punishment that he's talking about at this point. But the crowd shouts, crucify, crucify, crucify. So he gets this idea. At this time of year, it was customary for him to release one of the prisoners, and Pilate's got a great idea. It just so happens that in prison, he has a man who is guilty of everything Jesus is being accused of. He's got a man named Barabbas. Interestingly enough, his name, Barabbas, break it down into two parts. You've got Abba, which means father, Barabbas, Abba, and Bar means son of the. So you've got son of the father. So there's some discussion about what his name actually means. But you have one son of the father who's absolutely guilty being brought before the innocent son of God the Father. And they're going to be stood up in front of the judgment of the world. And he thought they know Barabbas is guilty. They're going to want Jesus to be set free and they're going to want Barabbas to be killed. He's going to set them up there. He's going to do this thing where he's going to let one of them go. He stands them up there, and Matthew's account tells us that while he has them up there, standing before the crowd and the people, the Sanhedrin, the groups that have gathered because they're wanting to see what's going on, while he's about to ask, who should I let go, someone walks up to him and says, hey, your wife has had a dream about Jesus. So Pilate goes from looking out at the crowd to looking back here at this person who's telling him about what his wife's dream was about, his wife's dream was, don't have anything to do with this Jesus of Nazareth. Don't have anything to do with him. Leave him alone. And while he's looking back here at this servant, the Sanhedrin are busy at work going to all the people and saying, hey, tell them Barabbas. Hey, tell them we want Barabbas. Barabbas is who we want freed. So when 
Pilate comes back to the crowd and he says, Who should I let go? The crowd shouts out, Give us Barabbas! And Pilate never saw that coming. The crowd chooses Barabbas and that's really where I'm going to leave the text. He is taken at this time. He is sentenced to crucifixion. He is taken. He is beaten, scourged at this time. I've given you a long timeline and it's probably felt like drinking from a fire hydrant. It's probably been fatiguing. But understand, I kind of wanted it to be that way because I want you to understand what Christ had endured. And the whole time, He was silent. If anyone could have put a stop to these proceedings, it could have been Jesus. Jesus We find out in John 18 when they go to arrest him, they go up and say, where is Jesus? And he says, I am he. And at his words, I am he. The whole lot of them fall to the ground. Jesus, at the power of his words, knocks armies to the ground. At his word, he could have stopped this trial at any moment. This travesty of justice could have ended. If he had just spoken up, before the public and said, there has been no witness called. At the very least, they would have said, we've got to stop the proceedings until we can find a witness because the public would have never held held that. Jesus could have stopped it at any moment. He held absolute sovereignty in the palm of His hand. No, Pilate was not in control. No, Herod was not in control. The Sanhedrin was not in control. Christ was in charge of His own sentencing the entire time. Why? Why would he allow this travesty of justice to go on? Why? Because in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus remained silent. Why? Because He was charged by the Father to go to the cross. He was charged by the Father to go and be a sacrifice so that you and I could know salvation, so that you and I could have forgiveness of sins, so that even though we are just as vile and just as wicked and just as guilty as the Sanhedrin and Pilate and Herod and Judas and all those involved, even though we stand just as guilty, Christ can look at us and say, I took the guilt so you can be pronounced not guilty. So we have to ask ourselves a question. It's the same question that Pilate asked during one of his trials. In Matthew 27, 22, I'll end with this. Pilate said to them, what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? That is the same question that you must ask yourself at this very moment. This Christ endured every bit of injustice. He endured the cross. He endured ridicule and scoffing and mockery. And He did it so that I could have salvation. What then? shall I do with this Jesus who is called the Christ? What He has done is clear. What will you do? Let me pray for us. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do love You. We praise You. We thank You, God, for the blessings of Your Word. Father, I pray that we have not... We have not looked at these texts of Scripture lightly, but we have felt the weight of the injustice done against Your Son. And Father, I pray 
that you would use this time to give us a deeper appreciation for his sacrifice and for all that he endured so that we might have salvation. I pray you'd be glorified, that you'd be honored in this service and in the hearts of the people here. And it's in your son's name, Jesus, I once again ask these things and for his sake. Amen.